Welcome to Ed Talks, an audio podcast presented by Achieve Twin Cities in partnership with Graves Venture, a project of the Graves Foundation. Ed Talks is a lively series of community conversations about public education and related issues that impact our young people. This Ed Talks, we're celebrating our 10th anniversary season of Ed Talks with a very special event featuring five past Ed Talks presenters including Dr. Keith Brooks, former Student Services Director of Anoka Hennepin School District, Jason Bucklin, LGBTQ Education Specialist at the Minnesota Department of Education, Dave Eisenman, Director of Technology at Minnehaha Academy, Salma Hussein, Principal of Gideon Pond Elementary, and Aaron Walsh, Co-Founder of Spark and Stitch Institute. They discuss what's changed since they last appeared on the Ed Talk stage, the impact of the pandemic, and other recent events, and what might be in store for us all moving forward. This Ed Talk was live streamed from Ice House in Minneapolis on March 8th, 2023. At this time, I'd like to jump right in and invite our panelists back to the stage. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Keith Brooks, Jason Buckland, Dave Eisenman, Salma Hussein, and Aaron Walsh. Come on back up. We're gonna kick things off by sharing short clips of each of your Ed Talks and give each of you the opportunity to tell us what's on your mind as you reflect back on those talks. First up, Keith, welcome. Thank you. I'd like to start with you. In 2016, your Ed Talk Critical Race Theory, Fact versus Feeling, attracted quite an audience and to this day is the most watched Ed Talks on the Achieve YouTube page. Here is, yes, here is just a clip of that talk. When I see you, I don't see race, the, co- the, the colorblind mythology. People are just people. I don't see color. We're all just human. Character, not color, is what counts with me. Well, once again, based on the history, okay, well, who's defining what character is? Uh, but then also, colorblindness denies the cultural values, norms, expectations, and life experiences of people of color. Even if an individual uh, white person can ignore a person's skin color, society does not. Claiming to be colorblind can also be a defense for shutting the conversation down. That's what I found is that people use that in a manipulative way to not talk about it. White people don't want to accept how affiliation and social benefits gave and continue to provide them advantages people of color don't have and some never will. I've heard this statement, these protesters speak so well, but they're such violent people. You know, look at a few, you know, look at slavery in the making of America, slavery by another name, race, the power of illusion. Look at uh, all of the volumes of uh, Eyes on the Prize and talk to me about violence. If black men don't want to get stopped by the police, maybe they shouldn't dress that way. So what do criminals look like? And again, I said, i.e. Bear Stearns and all of the other, you know, look up the house. That was a good movie I just saw last week, The Big Short, and talk to me about criminal activity. People get arrested because they're committing crimes. Uh, Look up the Innocence Project when you get a chance. You don't necessarily have to be committing a crime to get arrested and thrown in jail. Racism ended in the 60s. Stop making a such big deal out of nothing. Now, just look at a few of these statements. If anyone works hard, they will get ahead. Well, we just saw a clip that just said that that's not accurate or true. Uh, Some people excuse themselves from responsibility for racism because you weren't born yet when people were enslaved. Some also insist that people of color should look at their intent and not the impact of what you do or support because of good intentions. All right, very quickly, I'm about done here. 
Some of you all may saw, is it, is it Ahmed? Did y'all see this last year? 14-year-old man, young man, uh, makes a clock, gets arrested uh, because they panic and think it's a bomb. Okay. You see some comments here from Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook and think he also had a chance to visit the White House. But I get concerned about the talented kids of color uh, who have similar experiences and don't get a chance to go to the White House or get, a, uh, 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 get acknowledged in this way for the intelligence that they have. What I find is that many kids sometimes are just very bored like I was in most of my classes. Did, did y'all see a lot of the posts that came out during the Annie movie? Annie movie? Uh, so lots of people were just bothered. Th these are some of the posts right here. WTF, I got my kids in the room, so I'm not going to say what WTF means. Uh, all right. Uh, since when is Annie and Daddy Warbucks black? <laughs> Look at this one. Why not do a movie of a white Martin Luther King? <laughs> That's, isn't that strange? So <laughs> you're talking about a fictional movie, and you're going to compare that with a civil rights icon. Right? It doesn't even match up. So, Keith, yeah, applause. After seeing that clip, what's on your mind tonight? First off, thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Um, and all the comments that I make are mine and, and mine alone and do not represent any other organization. I received a lot of feedback and responses after that presentation. I received a lot of communication from across the country, uh, Canada, overseas, uh, college students, graduate students, professors, corporations. And you all may recall that over the last four years, there's been a major pushback on critical race theory. Even right now, we're using some of the tenets of it in this space without even using the words. There was so much confusion and angst in school districts and universities. When parents saw culturally responsive teaching, which obviously has the same acronym, they were automatically bothered and wondered what it was and were confused by it. People wanted to get rid of all of it. Parents became increasingly aggressive towards white teachers and teachers of color alike who talked about racial bias. So it's no surprise that many teachers are leaving the field and higher education departments are dwindling. Opponents of the work started submitting data requests so that they could see every document that had any of the DEI words on them, which monopolized a lot of time in school districts. I remember being in so many meetings wasting so much time answering questions of culturally incompetent people who talked to me like they were above me and knew my field better than me. I remember having to work through and navigate the discomfort of some parents who didn't understand the issues but talked to me like I was beneath them. And through the years, some educational leaders yielded and acquiesced to the demands of those parents. One community member doing a public comment at a school board meeting said, we don't want any more of that equity. They should just be doing reading, writing, and arithmetic. And we were all looking around like, what's equity? What is e Oh, equity. So you don't even know what you're talking about. That was, that was deep. I remember thinking, where am I and what decade is this? 
Many of the people who were and are against it can't really articulate the aspects of it well. In addition, I was a DEI lead for a suburban school district a few years later after the initial presentation here. An anti-referendum group used a short clip of that presentation and manipulated it to make me seem like some scary guy who was coming to brainwash students, which obviously, <laughs> which was not my focus nor my job to do. Some would submit that students are already given an inadequate education by not telling them the entirety of our collective history. At that moment, I realized my profile and national visibility had increased and I became a target. The referendum in that school district did not pass and the entire district was shocked, but I wasn't because I knew that when fear is placed in front of a culturally incompetent mind, they lean on the side of familiarity and discomfort. These are just a few of the challenging experiences in education that have, that have prompted me to never return to the field. I'll pause there. I got more, but I'll pause there. Thank you. It's quiet again, yeah, like right? it was last time. <laughs> That's <laughs> Wasn't good. Wasn't trying to put a damper on no, the move. I, people are thinking and right. taking it in. Right. Well, thank you for sharing. Thank uh, you. It's good to see, I mean, it's, it's good to see that you were talking about that in 2016. I'm sad to say that we're still talking about it, yeah. you know? Mm. All right, Jason, okay. let's move on to your ed talk. In 2019, you took the stage here at Ice House to discuss gender inclusivity in schools. Mm -hmm. At the time, you were working at Minneapolis Public Schools, and now you're at the Minnesota Department of Education doing very similar work. Let's take a look. Okay. But I want you to think about what lessons did you learn growing up about gender? Where did you learn them? And how have those impacted your values? Which ones do you still carry with you? Which ones have you discarded? Gender is a social construct, right? And on top of that social construct, there's also a cultural lens. And so my job in the school district is not to say, this is the good way to think about gender, this is the bad way to think about gender. We all have to understand that we all have different entry points into this conversation, and I'm more interested is, do we have a closed mindset about gender, or do we have an open mindset about gender? Do the families and students we're working with, do they have a closed mindset about gender, or an open mindset? Because that's gonna help us bridge connection, and so that we can meet each other and, and share values, and really make change and make inclusive spaces. So, to, um, even though we all have different experiences, um, and different stories from our home about how we've constructed gender. There's still a few unwritten social contracts that I think we can all see play out. And so I find it interesting that we wrap someone's performance of masculinity to their sexuality. And to attack that masculinity, we attack their sexuality. And we start doing that, I've heard reports in the schools, as early as kindergarten, right? And so kid, in preschool. So kids are using words they don't know what they mean, right? That's what I said, I'm just using the words, right? However, sometimes as adults and educators, we get afraid to actually intervene and talk about what that word means. So what the result is, is for six years, until we think it's developmentally appropriate to talk about it in a certain way, for six years, they get to develop a negative connotation between the word gay, meaning something bad. And then in sixth grade, we are supposed to untangle that and go, no, 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 actually, you know, we include all families and we include all people, but we've let them for six years learn a negative connotation between gay and um, something bad, unless we um, interject, right? And so when we make our spaces and our schools more inclusive 
for LGBT students around gender, what we're really doing is making spaces more inclusive for all of us who are performing gender, and we're all performing gender whether we realize it or not. From what classes we think we're good at, what jobs we get, how much emotion we're allowed to show, how we dress, how we show up in the world. So again, the more inclusive we make our spaces for LGBT students, the more uh, we make them inclusive for everybody. When our students were given the Minnesota Student Survey, they were able to uh, self-identify as mostly masculine, somewhat masculine, somewhat feminine, or mostly feminine. The majority of our students self-identified into the somewhat categories. However, our society is structured to focus on the mostly categories, but the majority of us are all just kind of in the somewhat category. So we have the power to make a change for our students. This tells me that being born transgender is not inherently hard. It's that society around transgender people make it hard. So we have an urgent task right now to make sure that our students end up in the blue column and not the yellow column. And our action or our inaction is actively pushing our students into one of those two categories. Um, and I don't want to give up the game, but this is actually pretty easy work, <laughs> right? It just takes a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of intention to make a huge difference for our students. Hey. Thank you. So Jason, what are your thoughts as you look back on your talk? Yeah, as, I, as I look back, um, uh, you, in, in the questions you were asking, what we're, what we're thinking, and I think I have to first kind of ground myself um, just in like a, a feeling space. Um, and one of that is, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is, is, is in this space on a 10th anniversary is also history. Because uh, I'm getting to be in a, back in a room and I'm like, hey, it's Danielle, hey, it's, you know, and getting to see these, and Keith and, and other folks that I've got to work with. And so getting to, to, to see and be in a space with educators is just one such an honor, but also a reminder of all the folks that are also doing this work and have been doing this work and continue to do this work. Um, so that's one thing that sticks uh, out to me. Um, but I'm just going to be uh, kind of open and honest and, and, and confess a little bit too. I'm, uh, today I'm kind of I'm spinning a little bit, right? Because um, uh, earlier today um, I also got to be over at the state capitol. Um, the governor uh, recently signed an executive order on a trans refugee bill, which is, which is huge. Um, and sometimes people are like, well, why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? Um, so just kind of for context, um, since that talk, uh, we've had three record-setting years of anti-trans legislation introduced across the nation. This year alone, we've had 440 anti-trans legislation uh, proposed across the nation, and a large part of that is targeted at our schools. Um, and for a big reason, and, and, and Keith, actually, I, I really appreciate uh, that you, your, your talk was titled um, uh, Fact versus Feeling. Is that fiction, fact versus fiction. Fact versus fiction. Um, or, I don't know. You know, something like that. <laughs> I just work here, yeah. Jason. No, 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 it's good. It's good because, because I think about how marginalization and oppression, the impacts of, of those are different in different communities, but the pattern is often the same, right? And so we posit and we position and we, we, we work inside that space of fear um, and so we're often seeing this attack on anti-trans legislation and critical race theory, both being attacked at the same time is not an accident, right? And so the more that we can ingrain intersectionality into our ways of being and the ways that we work and the ways we work together, the more we're gonna actually be able to move forward along these pieces as well. Um, so today is a day of gratitude, of celebration, of also acknowledging the reality um, that so many of our students and families are still facing. 
Um, so that's, that's where I sit on this side of the, <laughs> the stage. Thank you. Yeah, yeah you can clap. Dave, uh, in your Ed Talk, How to Raise Tech Healthy Kids, you talked a lot about ways parents can help their kids set boundaries with technology. Ironically, you gave this talk just two months before Minnesota went into COVID lockdown and young people had to do most everything online, <laughs> from attending school to socializing with friends. Here's a clip from your talk. Some other things that I've learned over the past five years or so is how technology works with our brain and how our brain works in general. And I'm not a neuroscientist or can pretend to even be one here, but in our brain, when good things happen to us and we get this little shot of dopamine, this healthy chemical that makes us feel good. And something, maybe someone that we um, really like says something nice to us or we you know, win something or something good happens, we get these shots of dopamine. And that's something that our brain wants. But of, cor of course, too much dopamine can be um, a bad thing. And in Silicon Valley, technology engineers have purposely designed technology, it's called persuasive design, to make us want to use our tech more. And so Tristan talks about our phone as a pocket slot machine. If you think of that, have you ever pulled the handle down on your phone? It's with your thumb to refresh, to see, do I have any new messages? Any new posts, any new likes, any new comments, any new friends? Each time that those happen, we get a shot of dopamine, whether it's a like, a new tweet, a follower, a news story, um, a new TikTok video comment. I'm sure you're all on TikTok here, right? Your kids are. Or a snap, of course, uh, and Snapchat. And even we've started then putting these to numbers. We numerically catalog each of these things so that we feel bad if we don't have enough likes or we feel um, less popular if aren't, there aren't enough comments or kids are even taking things down within the first few minutes if they don't get a hundred comments or a hundred likes and of course Snapchat puts a numerical number to the number of days in a row that you have Snapchatted someone so you feel compelled to continue to do that and check back on a daily basis. But taking away the tech is not the answer. We can't just go live up in the boundary waters off the grid. Well, that's even harder nowadays to do up in the boundary waters. I still get a cell signal in a lot of places. In the future, our kids and our grandkids are gonna live in this high-tech world. And we need to help them learn to manage this and keep it in balance and work with their screen time um, so that they can balance their FOMO with JOMO. What's JOMO? Joy of missing out, exactly joy of missing out. We need times in our lives where we have tech and we can keep it in balance. We need times in our lives where we can be comfortable not checking in and not always looking at it or always using it. There's a difference between educational screen time and entertainment screen time and I think that's an important thing to understand that uh, it was three years ago the American Academy of Pediatrics released new screen time recommendations and they no longer said hey limit it to two hours a day. Instead they said hey Let's look at the content that's on the screen, not just as there's a screen in front of a child's face, or anyone's face for that matter, and let's start to look at limiting, excuse me, entertainment screen time, but not educational screen time. So Dave, what are you thinking as you look back at your clip? Well, a couple things. Um, I'm very thankful I didn't wear that exact same outfit tonight. So. <laughs> Um, and I actually 
had grabbed that first and I thought, did I wear a suit? Okay, so another thing I um, have noticed is I've really aged. Um, so I noticed that as well. But, um, I, I think in, in seriousness, I, in that video or at that talk, I, what was not in that clip is I did mention I kind of had this life reset moment when my young daughter basically called me out and just pointed out to me that I was spending all my time on the phone and not really paying attention to her. And um, that was just this life-changing moment for me that um, really kind of started me down this road and this quest to, to find balance and to talk to students around the state, to talk to educators and to talk to parents as well um, about the need for a balance of technology in our lives. Um, we all are using it, of course, and uh, we have the option to use the technology to help us kind of control um, what comes in or we can just kind of let it take over and control us. And so I talked a lot in that talk about settings and helping our kids with um, kind of some guidelines and some guardrails in place and things like that. Um, I mentioned in that talk Tristan Harris. I still have great respect for the Center for Humane Technology and the work that he has done in Silicon Valley um, and just in uh, legislation and really awareness uh, uh, to the issues at hand that are all, um, you know, still, still really pertinent today, I believe. Thank you. Salma, your Ed Talk centered around immigrant youth and the importance of vulnerability in relationship building. The idea that as an educator to connect more deeply and empathize with your students, you have to connect deeply with yourself. Your Ed Talk, The Power of Strong Relationships for Student Success was truly moving. Here's a clip. Growing up in public housing, it did have some stigma. And right now, the work that I'm doing at South High School, I have kiddos who live in those same apartments that I used to live in. So my work has really been about healing myself and taking the time to, to feel good about who I am as a person, right? And at South High School, my passion really is about creating programming that validate and celebrate our students. So again, connecting it back to Brene, Brene talks about vulnerability and how what makes you vulnerable makes you beautiful. I come from a culture where being vulnerable is not, uh, is not celebrated, it's not encouraged. And I think the American culture too, now we're starting to see like, yeah, be vulnerable. But for a while, I think there was just, uh, 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 it was discouraged. But I trust that all of you here are in the education field and care deeply about students. And one thing that's missing in education is authentic relationships and connections. And being vulnerable really allows you to build genuine relationships with the students. In my work with students, I sometimes talk to them about my own experiences. Um, I have a young lady who wanted to go to prom. I didn't go to prom in high school, but I understand how important it is for kiddos to do that. So I stepped in connecting with the parents, helping them understand that it's not what they see on the TV. There are plenty of chaperones. Uh, uh, and, and just it's, it's just... The ability to step in and support students has empowered me to be my confident self, right? 
One of the things that I did in terms of uh, owning my narrative is I recently went on Google.com and I found the Minneapolis Public Housing Authority website and I wrote a public review just thanking them for the opportunity to have a home over our head and just just really thanking them now that I'm 30 and more understanding. And I did that because I no longer wanted to not be able to identify with parts of my story, right? And for me, working with students who currently live in the same homes, I tell these kids, like, you're working hard and I see the work that you're putting in and know that your story is not over. One of my mantras that I always tell kids, like, I'm wa I love to walk in the hallways and I tell kids I'm proud of you and I really mean it because I see the journeys that these kids have been through. I tell kids that you are enough to be successful, that you are success. And this isn't just for the Somali kids, this is for every kid. Every kid, every day, every time. Building them up, because when they feel good about themselves and they believe in their abilities, they're more likely to do school better. And then for all of the educators in this room, I really want us to remember that passion led us here, that we didn't join education to get rich. We joined, yes, we joined to make a difference, to support young people. Um, I really want to encourage all of us to use compassion when we're talking to our students and also to use compassion when we're talking to ourselves. Now, Selma, when you gave your talk, you were a social worker at South High School. Today, you're the principal of Gideon Pond Elementary School. I'm very curious to hear what's on your mind as you watch that clip and think about your talk. You can take a moment if you need it. Yes, I need a moment. Um, I, when I gave that talk, I was really nervous. Um, and I'm still nervous today, too. Um, but I really appreciate the ACHIEVE organization and what they stand for. I remember when I was in high school looking for an opportunity through the Step Up program. And it was Step Up that gave me the opportunity because at the time I wanted to be a journalist. Um, so I got a internship, a paid dignified internship at the Star Tribune. And then this opportunity came. I was at South High School working with a dynamic social work team. And Katie is one of those social workers. And this week is social work, uh, school social worker appreciation week. So let's give it up for Katie. And, and all of the social workers that are making a difference. Um, for me, it really is about students. Um, when I gave this talk, I wanted to stress the importance of relationships. And the most important relationship is the one that you have with yourself. I now have the privilege to work with elementary students and I get to tell them like, I love you. And uh, uh, auntie, in the Somali culture, we call each other because we're all a big family. I call the kiddos Javier. And sometimes for people that are not Somali, they're like, is everybody's name Javier? I'm like, no, <laughs> it just means family. And I had an African-American student ask me, "Can?" Can I call you a hubby? And I'm like, of course, we're a family. So for me, this relationship is important. As we talk about critical race theory, as we talk about education, my mission in education really is to facilitate love and strength-based uh, transformation. 
And that strength is also vulnerability. So here I am on stage crying because I was looking at Selma from five years ago and I'm like, I'm so proud of you. Despite being nervous, I showed up. And now at my school at Gideon Pond Elementary, every school assembly, the first one that I was at, I told the kiddos, I was like, listen, as your principal, I am working on public speaking. And ever since that opening, every uh, assembly I open it up with, what is your principal working on? And the kids are like, you're working on not being embarrassed in front of people? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and here I am. So again, relationship, and I hope all of you can be part of my community and be committed to learning and growing and being vulnerable and understanding that strength also includes crying um, and whatever else that works for you. But like, we're all dope and everybody is needed in education to serve all of our students. Speaking of what you were talking about, Dave, I'm wearing the same dress as in <laughs> Salma's clip, so it happens. And thank you, Salma. Uh, last but not least, of course, Erin, your Ed Talk, It's Complicated, Students, Social Media, and Mental Health could not be more relevant to present-day conversations. You shared the stage with Dave back in January 2020, so again, very ironic that you presented on your topic just months before the whole world moved online. Let's take a look at what you shared. This is kind of the media ecology of my childhood in terms of sort of what devices we had, how we shared data, how we stored data. Um, and then you compare that, of course, to the media ecology of students and children today, and it is a world apart. More devices, more screens, more data, more stories, more powerfully presented than any other time in history. Right? Arguably one of the greatest lifestyle changes in the last generation is the sheer amount of time we spend with entertainment media. And so as we look at the media landscape, of course, it begs a lot of really important questions. Not the least of which, as we look at anxiety and depression levels rise in the last number of years, is social media good or bad for student mental health? I get asked this everywhere I go these days. Now I wish here tonight, in the context of this short and neat talk, that I have a simple response to this question. But if you really dig into the data, is social media good or bad for student mental health? The answer is really yes, it depends. Um, or maybe the old Facebook status update, it's complicated. Maybe it shouldn't seem like much of a surprise, but when young people are extending offline relationships and deepening them in online spaces, this can actually be a protective factor for their mental health, right? If I'm going to soccer practice, or I'm going to Lego robotics, or I'm going to an organizing meeting after school, and I'm coming home and I'm deepening those relationships, especially since so many students tell us that logistically, it's difficult for them to get together. And then you compare that to getting home from school, logging on, and scrolling, and scrolling, and scrolling, and this kind of hyper-passive use has a much stronger association with increased levels of anxiety and depression. Right? It's like being invited or going to a party that I wasn't invited to, sitting in the corner and watching everybody else have the time of their lives. 
We often assume that the very worst version of kids is online. This is where they go to taunt one another. This is where they go to bully one another to spread rumors. Sometimes when we ask questions and we listen, we realize that the place where a young person feels most courageous, most kind, most creative is in their online world. And that actually the hallways of school are the most difficult for them. If we don't understand the way that the identity online and offline are starting to fray, it's really difficult for us to support them. So one of the questions I get asked a lot is, what do I do if I actually see a student or if I, a friend tells me that my kid is posting things online that are worrisome? How do I respond to online displays of depression or anxiety? Well, a group of researchers asked teenagers in this country that question, and overwhelmingly they told us, I hope an adult follows up with me face to face. So, Aaron, what comes to mind for you as you watch that clip? It didn't go away in the last three years. As we think about the intersection of social media and mental health, I almost feel overwhelmed at the timing of this event. So I stood on this stage January of 2020. And I think I had the audacity to stand on this stage as well as stages across the country and make a claim, something along the lines of like, there's no more physical time that students could spend with social media. Like the data has plateaued and it's just sort of physically impossible to do more screen time. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, weeks later, my third grader then kindergartner who started online school and, you know, my third grader now, sixth grader went into online school and all of our lives migrated uh, into learning, socializing, connecting, um, leading, trying to participate in digital spaces. I really think about this time as continuing to emerge from this state of sort of deep digital immersion. And the data show that I was deeply wrong when I made those statements. So screen, entertainment, screen time, no surprise to any of us who have lived the last three years has gone up about 17%. So the average tween or teen spends about eight and a half hours a day with media for fun, not related to school. So more than a full-time job and more than most of us are spending sleeping. Um, and though we have gone back to school in person and gone back to connecting in real life, screen time has stayed high. That 17% just sort of stuck. Um, so I think my, what I'm thinking about is um, it's almost like the accelerator has been put on those twin trends. We've spent more time with entertainment media, and of course the latest CDC data released in the last few weeks is another set of alarm bells about uh, the child and adolescent mental health crisis that did not start with COVID, but has accelerated since then. Um, and so what's on my mind is really, really thinking about the urgency with which we need to bring rigor and care and relational attention to the questions about that intersection. It's a really easy time to start telling really simple stories about why kids are feeling the way they're feeling and why adults are feeling the way they're feeling. And this is not a simple time. Um, and I think young people and our students um, we owe them the complex answers that better reflect how their strengths and vulnerabilities are playing out, both in online and offline spaces. And I can speak to that a little later. Um, but, but here we are. The problem continues. <laughs> the challenge and the opportunity continues.
Thank you. So we have a few more questions for the panel and then we'll take some time to do Q&A from all of you. So if you have questions that are cropping up in your minds as you listen, uh, please feel free to either drop them in the buckets or find uh, Jane back there and uh, drop those questions in. So one of the reasons we invited you all to share the stage tonight is because each of you presented on a topic or idea that's still incredibly relevant and timely today. Thinking back to the time you delivered your Ed Talk, what has changed since then, and do you think differently about these issues today? Anyone can start. Mm -hmm. I'll jump in, that's cool. Uh, Jason, thanks for reminding me about uh, the title it is Fact Versus Feeling. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because I'm gonna ask people to fact check some of the stuff I'm getting ready to say. You know, I always ask people, don't take my word for it, go ahead and, 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 and do your own research. And so I think that the, um, I think about anti-blackness that is present right now, uh, I think that it's picking up steam in my perception across the country in many ways. As one example, I'm referring to Dr. Nicole Hannah-Jones, who was initially denied tenure at her alma mater of University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, a school that she loved and grew up loving Nicole Hannah-Jones is a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter covering racial injustice for the New York Times Magazine and the creator of the landmark, many of you all may be familiar, the 1619 Project. And so after protests and struggle and back and forth, then they offered her the tenure. And I, I wondered, why wouldn't you want a stellar scholar like that at your university? And she did a thing that I probably would have done too. She declined the tenure and went to Howard University, a historically black college and university. Sadly, I wasn't surprised that they treated her this way because they recently banned DEI statements. You all, please look that up. There are others that are following suit. I'm thinking about the January 6th insurrection of the United States Capitol since the last time we were together. Those mobs reminded me of the same ones that resisted the desegregation of schools in Little Rock, Arkansas, Boston, and New Orleans with Ruby Bridges. They reminded me of the mobs that burned Black Wall Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma to the ground in 1921. It reminded me of the Freedom Riders in Mississippi and other peaceful protesters crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. I'll pause there. Thank you. Thanks. Anybody else? You can just jump in. All right, we'll keep the same order this time, but the next time we're going to just like... <laughs> okay, um, <clears throat> so what's changed and how are we changing how we think about this issue? Yeah, do you think, do you think yeah. differently about it? No, but, <laughs> but, but I think more deeply about it, right? I see the different ways that it connects to all different parts of my, my life and, the, and those sorts of ways. But the thing that I want to name and that I want to acknowledge of things that have changed is, is really the amount of visibility that our community has inside schools, and with that, the pushback that our community has in schools as well. Um, so I've been blessed to get to do queer youth work for about 19 years now. 
Um, and back when I first started, I was working at a place just up the street called District 202. Uh, it was an LGBTQ youth center. Um, and at that time, uh, I was often working with queer and trans youth who were homeless and highly mobile, who didn't always have support from home. And then when I started my role at the school district in 2012, it was the first time that I noticed this shift where parents were the ones that were showing up and say, hey, I actually want to see more things happen for my, my queer and trans children. I want to see better things happen for my queer and trans children. Of course, not all parents, but there was a, there was a trend moving in that way, right? And now we've also got teachers uh, who are moving in that way of, of support. Um, and, and, and one of the big things that's, that's shifting as well is, again, um, we just recently saw uh, from the Minnesota Student Survey um, the percentage of our students in eighth grade and above uh, that identify as, as transgender, gender nonconforming. And just for a little audience participation, anybody have a guess? Like what that number is, just throw out a number. Hey, yes, so it's, it's, it's a wild thing, right? So uh, normally what we think about with, with uh, lesbian, gay, and bisexual people has been historically referred to as 10% uh, of the population. Transgender people tend to make a one or 2% of the population. Our Minnesota student survey showed that 24% of our students across the state identify as something as other than straight, and 10% of our students identify as, as transgender or gender nonconforming, which is huge. We haven't had that kind of visibility. It's not that we didn't exist. It's that we didn't have the ability to talk about it in a way about data, in a way that these systems talk about this, right? Um, so to put that 10% number, because 10, it's 10, um, what that really means across Minnesota uh, we have 400,000 students across the state of Minnesota that are in eighth grade and above, which means 40,000 students, right, in Minnesota identify as transgender, gender nonconforming. So when we're talking about these anti-trans laws, when we're passively or actively refusing to use a student's name or pronoun or not teach or allow themselves to see themselves in the classroom or see their families in this classroom, we're harming so many students, and it's way bigger than, uh, I, than we realized before, I would say. And, and to your other part about, um, I don't think differently, I think about it just uh, in, a, in a deeper way. Um, something that I mentioned before is LGBTQ inclusion work is something that impacts everybody. Um, we're all navigating or performing gender in different ways, and there's plenty of studies, if you're, if you're a data person, um, that show LGBTQ inclusive practices benefit all students in your, in your um, school uh, and, and in your buildings and in your classroom. Um, and I think also continues to really integrate and bring again that need um, around intersectionality um, through that work so all of our students um, get to see themselves in their classroom and just what it can mean uh, when you have that representation, when you're used to not being able to see yourself and then somebody in your school building says, hey, you know what, I see you, I value you, I'm glad you're here, can make a profound impact and it's one of those things that are free. It's one of those things that's easy, right? Uh, it doesn't take a $50,000 budget and like three years of studies and plans. Um, and, and, and to me, that, that always just kind of brings me back to, to, to what we were doing in the first place. <laughs> Thank you. Anyone else want to jump in? Oh. You don't have to go in the same order. Sure, I'll go. So if I understand the question correctly, um, it is, how am I feeling about my topic now? Yeah, what's changed and do you think differently about these issues today? I would have to agree with Jason. I feel more 
passionate and deeply about the need to establish strong homeschool partnerships and really the need for educators to be authentic. Our young people, whether they're in elementary or high school, they can sense real and they deserve us to be real. Um, when I gave my TED talk, Ed talk, I talked about um, my cousins who um, came to my house and saw my house and they're like, whoa, your house is like Kim Kardashian uh, because they thought it was so massive. I'm like, not really. <laughs> and my husband, Jeremy, who I love very much said, you know, Selma, children have access to celebrities. Celebrities make their lives so open. He said, how powerful would it be for educators to open up more about themselves so that way kids can have real role models. So one of the things that I really try to model for my staff at Gideon Pond Elementary, who are pretty good people, who are striving to do the best they can, um, is the piece around vulnerability. So a lot of times, at least in my community and in other communities, there is stigma around mental health um, and just having escaped a civil war. Um, I am pretty honest that I live with anxiety. So being able to tell that to students, like your principal has anxiety, normalizes mental health. Because one of the things that I try to tell families is that mental health is health. So I really am strategic in the way that I share that. I don't go around just telling everybody, oh, I've got anxiety. But when I know that it can make a difference for a student, I humanize who I am. I talked about living in public housing, being able to use that to show children like auntie where you're at right now is a point in your story. And while I am your principal, this is where I started. I started off as a refugee in a refugee camp, started off in public housing. And as I learned to trust myself, I ended up being more confident. And one last thing I wanted to share, I don't think Katie has heard the story about the power of representation. When I was working at South High School, I really wanted all of the students, especially the BIPOC students, to be very confident. But I realized that I wasn't being confident myself. I would show up to social work meetings, and Katie and the other social workers, dope people, were talking about how they would go hiking and biking and camping and all these fun things, things that I didn't do. And back then, I was at a different place in my life, so I started a question like, do I belong? My experiences are so different than my colleagues, uh, and it made me feel like I was less than, but I realized what was making me feel less than was that lack of representation in my educational journey. Because I didn't have classroom teachers that looked like me, I had internalized that success wasn't for me. So now that I am in the places that I am, even being at this Ed Talk, when I was in front of my staff today, I said, I need to not be at conferences tonight because I want to take up space at, at talks and to represent not just for myself, but for all of my people. And I told my staff, my people are all good people. As long as you're willing to learn and you're striving to do better, you're part of my community. Mm -hmm. Do you want to go up? Sure. All right. So what has changed since the last talk. I, I could almost swear, Aaron, that you took a couple of the bullets right <laughs> off of my page here. We had we both presented at the same time three years ago, the same night, and um, some very similar topics about technology and you discussed social media and mental health. Um, I literally have on here, first bullet, increase in screen time, eight and a half hours per day, 
Aaron got that one. Um, <laughs> increase with, of course, COVID and online learning. Um, you know, we've all been there. We've lived through it. We know kind of those changes and what happened. I did um, jot down a couple stats here that I thought are interesting because I mentioned TikTok in the video and I jokingly asked a room full of adults, you know, you could TikTok about it and mm -hmm. it, nobody really used it back then. But now you've heard of TikTok, right? I mean, that, that's one major change. And in fact, TikTok has now surpassed YouTube in the amount of time kids are spending on it per day. Hour and a half per day on TikTok versus an hour on YouTube per day um, of that entertainment screen time that they're spending. And you think of, of what that means for just that that's there, you know, these short kind of snippets of videos and everything is the short little, it's got to get entertain you or you scroll by it, you know, so it's got to be quick and catchy or um, controversial or offensive or shocking or um, that has changed, I think, in just those past three years. It's just an increase of that. And adults, the average TikTok adult user spends an hour a day on TikTok. That's a lot of time on on TikTok. Um, and of course, TikTok is trying to um, keep those users. And so they are shifting what used to be just a short video snippet has morphed into a three minute length max. And now they're shifting to a 10 minute length max. So they're you know, trying to pull more and more audience away from their competitors like YouTube and so on. And that'll have some interesting effects. So that has changed. Aaron talked about educational versus entertainment screen time. I always like to point out that importance that I think we can't just lump screen time and all screens are bad. I mean, there's wonderful things that you can do in education and with technology and on a screen. Um, it's that entertainment screen time, kind of the after learning time and hours and hours of passive entertainment that I think can cause some harm. Um, I think that another thing that um, has happened is we've had more public awareness of some of the behind the scenes things that are happening with technology, the manipulation, the dopamine and stuff like I talked about, that wasn't as known. But now we've had, I've already mentioned Tristan Harris once in my first answer, he was, I mentioned him in the video, I'll mention it again, but who in here saw the social dilemma? Okay, I see about maybe a fourth of the room or so. If you haven't seen that yet, 100 million people around the world saw that documentary. It's on Netflix, it's also free on YouTube. Um, it really pointed out, uh, kind of, and it interviewed people from Silicon Valley who had like invented the like button and they didn't mean it to be so manipulative and such a popularity thing when they invented it. And they talk about purposely designing things to um, they call themselves the attention merchants, and they are trying to keep you hooked and keep you engaged and use specific colors and design principles to keep you sucked in and basically take up all your free time and even our sleep time is being taken up. And I think uh, a last thing I'll mention that has been a change is we have some whistleblowers like Francis Haugen, if you remember that name from a couple years ago, worked for Facebook and basically came out and said, Facebook and who also owns Instagram is not looking for our best interests. Um, they are really not looking out for kids and they are, um, don't have great intentions. They're really concerned about the bottom line and the money they make and um, making more money and not the mental health of our children or even us. And so I think that has made more awareness of this. Thank you. Aaron. <laughs>
What's on my mind? But, um, you know, I think in so many ways we've had this front row seat <laughs> um, as educators and caregivers to some of the benefits and protective sort of the ways that screens can buffer us from isolation, watching uh, educators reach through the screens and engage students in such powerful ways. Um, students who do feel a sense of belonging in online communities and fandoms. And, and I think caregivers and, and as we all watched the migration into online, I think the appreciation for that has, has uh, we can touch it, we can see it a little bit better. Um, I think we've also had a front row seat to the limitations and what technology is like woefully inadequate uh, to replace. And, and I think we have maybe more concern about the inadequacies of tech. Mm -hmm. And I think as we, as we think about this complicated relationship specifically between social media and mental health or screen time and mental health, um, one of the first researchers who like, she was pretty prescient because she was studying like Friendster uh, back in the day <laughs> and did some of this first work looking at positive youth development, youth strengths in digital spaces. Um, and she always said, technology is not a panacea. Um, not only does it not always solve problems, but it mirrors and magnifies problems we've long been ignoring. Um, and I think that that quote can kind of guide our thought process and our reaction as we look at these sort of twin trend lines of screen time going up over the last 10 years and anxiety and depression going up over the last 10 years. And it would be very easy to just draw one line, a simple line, and then the response would be, well, clearly we just need to get students off screens and that would solve the mental health crisis. Um, Certainly we need to look at that line between them and there is a small and significant and meaningful association between those two things. Um, but unfortunately that small association masks a bunch of divergent and super important outcomes where we see some students thriving in online spaces and we th see other students sort of having a lot of toxic currents undercutting everything that they need to thrive. And we see some students who are kind of in between. Um, and it's really those divergent impacts, looking at specific student strengths, vulnerabilities, identities, access to supports and skill building, access to critical media literacy to understand how algorithms work and whether they serve them or don't, who builds these things, who profits off these things, all of those things matter for affecting outcomes. So I'm really grateful that I'm part of a panel in the, in the three year later revisitation, because yes, the link between social media and mental health is important, but so much research shows that mental illness and mental health outcomes are not driven by one thing. It's just not how it works. And so whether it's young people's experiences of racism online and offline, performance of gender, experiences of gender, their tech habits, when, how, why they're using it, there's experiences of vulnerability and relationship and belonging really, really matter. So I feel very, um, I feel passionate about the role of TikTok and Instagram, but only if we're also talking about racism, gender, um, we're also talking about youth agency and how do we create spaces that center adolescent well-being and are equitable and accessible on a system level. Um, I think if I'm thinking about something right now, it's we gotta stop just asking young people to protect themselves and caregivers to do all the heavy lifting and to actually think about what would it look like to build spaces where youth belong online and offline. 
And so that's really a human question more than like a TikTok innovation center question. Um, <laughs> that's what's on my mind. Wow. Thank you. I want to make sure that we get to our audience Q&A, and I see that the questions are like piling up in here. So panel, <laughs> quickly, uh, we've got a couple more questions uh, for you. Our current political and social climate has made it increasingly difficult for folks to engage in civil discourse. Mm. What does civil discourse look like to you, and how do you practice this personally and professionally? I will go first for this one. Um, I recently, I was on Facebook, um, and a friend that I met on Facebook, Heather Anderson, who is an incredible organizer in um, the city, Minneapolis, recently wrote that healing requires us to let go of the binary. I think a lot of times people think you're either good or you're bad. You, you either support this or you don't. Um, discourse to me looks like being able to uh, listen being able to seek to understand. These are leadership qualities that I learned in my leadership minor program at the U of M, but it really helps in real life. Being interested in understanding what the other person is saying. In my district, Burnsville, we had an opportunity. Others may not have seen it as an opportunity, but an opportunity to engage the community around a uh, guideline that was passed uh, to ensure that our schools were um, creating gender-affirming spaces for our transgender students. Um, and one of the media outlets got word of it and spend it in such a way that really um, created fear. And thankfully, thanks to the leadership of my district, they're not paying me to say this tonight, but we really leaned in. We listened to the community. Sometimes it was loud. It was very passionate. It drew a lot of audience, but we were firm in communicating to every community the same message that all of our schools, we serve all of our students, and our commitment is to make sure that every single student feels safe and seen, respected, and this is what this guideline is doing. Um, and through the listening, people were able to understand. So discourse for me really requires us as leaders and people that are invested in humanity to check ourselves and enter into the conversation with listening uh, and by listening and not trying to educate people, but really trying to hold space for people. I, I can jump in after that when you talk about building spaces and Aaron was just talking also about like there are great spaces online for some of this dialogue and this discourse and, and um, I think that the space that I'd like to talk about is, is making, making space uh, time and like through the noise and all the all the news and the distraction and the entertainment and stuff building actual time in your schedule in your day to have dialogue to have discourse to to give our kids a chance to talk to one another um we we have a, a kind of a guideline in our house no tech at the dinner table um we shift that also into when we go to a restaurant um, when we're in the car, 
there's there's no tech. It's that's time for discussion and conversation. And sometimes there isn't much to discuss. Since other times you can really get into a deeper conversation if you can set down the distraction or make the space and the time for it. So I like to encourage people to um, help our kids and help ourselves actually. Let's use that technology to turn off a whole bunch of the buzzes and the beeps and all those notifications. You don't need your phone to ding or your light to flash with every email you get or with every new social media post or, or whatever. I, I've tried to dial that all back and minimize the distraction so that there is time for discourse and discussion. We need to give our kids opportunity for that because our, our kids are in this environment where when there aren't rules there to like put the phones away or put the phones down, a lot of times they're just on their phones and they're together but apart as um, uh, author of uh, a book a few years ago even titled that uh, that way or alone together I think it was Sherry Turkle that um, had had written that book but um, giving our our kids kind of those opportunities is something we need to practice with them and we need to model too as adults um, that we aren't always um, interrupted because it's hard to have deep thoughts when you're you know every 30 seconds to couple minutes there's some sort of distraction and I'd encourage all of us here to don't practice notialization. I don't know if you've heard of that term before. A friend of mine uses it. Basically, it's being on your phone instead of socializing. They were kind of drawn to that as almost our pacifier rather than going out and meeting different people and dialoguing. Or the digital yawn will be the last thing I'll share with you, which is one, the first person in a conversation who, rather than continues the conversation, pulls out <laughs> his or her phone it has the same effect of a yawn where other people then start yawning or getting tired. I mean, pretty soon other people are checking out their, you know, their phones as well. But wow. um, create that space for a discourse and a dialogue. You should have known that in Minnesota, you can't just open up the panel and be like, like, I'll just leave this little piece. Do that sort of thing. But uh, I mean, I just want to echo uh, just so much of what Salma said, and also thank you for the leadership of your district in that moment. And it, and it really does come down to listening and relationship. I, reflecting on this question, reflecting on this panel, so many of us, it's, it's, it's almost not an accident that these were the talks that, that, that emerged, right, that we've got critical race theory, that we've got gender inclusive schools, we've got online digital citizens, citizenship, um, and we've also got relationships, right? And that's so much of what I feel like we are struggling with, right? Because as we get spun into identities instead of people, right? And then we're all just attacking and talking about identities. And oftentimes, to Dr. Brooks's point, uh, about equity <laughs> versus like actually knowing what we're talking about but we're able to use fear, we're able to use buzzwords, we're able to use these things. So if, and we can, it works on the gut level, right? So we say, hey, we just passed a thing to acknowledge gender affirming care today in the state of Minnesota. Some folks are gonna say, gender affirming care, I don't like that. Do you know what, do you know what it is? Or do you just know that you don't like it, right? And so we gotta remember that there's that humanity in there. And I, and I really appreciate what you mentioned about also entering in those spaces to listen. And sometimes it can be really hard because we have jobs that our identity, we have to show up in our identity every day to, to our work, right? And that can get 
tiring, <laughs> that can get hard at times, but also taking that time to listen. I often think about trying to figure out what are the values and what are the fears that are being shared in the room, because mm. those are also the things, oftentimes the things that are driving the conversation. And if we can get down to that level, we can get away from the political, we can get away from the taboo, we can get away from that identity talk, and we can get to the humanity um, that, that's present in that space. Uh, I recently, in my, in my new role at the Minnesota Department of Education, fielded a call, um, and it was somebody who, who didn't like how things were happening again around um, trans inclusion in the school. They didn't think it was right, and that, that sort of thing. They also didn't know what my role was, which was great, because if they knew what my role was, they probably wouldn't have been like, hey, I'm going to talk to you about it, <laughs> right? So they got to really just have an open, honest conversation about it. And we ended up having, and I know we don't all have the time to do this multiple times, we had two one-hour conversations over the course of a couple days and just really kind of walk and talk through those sorts of pieces, right? Um, online, we go, what'd you say about this? I've got a response about this. Meme, gif, meme, gif, like, who, you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and we're not actually engaging in the, in the humanity um, that, that, that is necessary um, to move these conversations in the direction they need to be. I can follow up with a short uh, observation building on that. One of my favorite studies in the field um, was done a number of years ago by a, a professor at Stanford, and he was looking at high media multitasking for tweens who identify as girls. He was like, wow, at first pass, the data is deeply devastating. Like, the higher the media multitasking, like, the worse all the outcomes for these students, and all the headlines ran, like, multitasking, ruining tweens. Um, and he was like, wait, there's a really important part of the data and an important part of the story that's being missed in these news headlines. And that was that for every hour of face-to-face -face time that was sort of added back in to these young people's lives, even when screen time was held high. So it wasn't replacing screen time, it was adding in. All of those effects started to get better. And, and talking with him about that research, it was this story again, about not necessarily that tech was bad, though I think we can agree that it can quickly deteriorate the quality of human interaction, depending upon how the space is structured, who's moderating it, what the purpose is, right? Um, but the, the data was also reminding us of another thing, which is that this is messy, it takes practice, it takes time, mm -hmm. and when I avoid it, I don't build the skills to sustain the sort of messiness and the conflict and some of the reward that happens when we stay with each other and when we stay curious and we build sort of those emotional skills of moving through something together. Um, so I think that's, in my field, a reminder that we need to look at how digital spaces are constructed to help young people have voice in the issues that impact them and to have that sort of dialogue and also know when to put our devices away turn towards each other and learn how to do this um, in real time and over time. I know that many of these topics are contentious and that, you know, they spark an emotional response. And I, you know, I, I acknowledge that. Um, and, and I understand that. Uh, and usually at the end of conversations, I'm, or even before a conversation, I'm wondering, can we disagree and I still be your neighbor? Can, can, can we disagree, but you still do me no harm and, and vice versa? And, 
And so I want to be able to share things, you know, that I'm processing. It doesn't mean that I won't think something different tomorrow. Mm. But as of today or at this moment, based on the information that I have, this is what this is what I'm thinking. And so there's some very good commercials from Procter & Gamble on YouTube that I invite people to, to check out. And in reflecting on racial bias, organizations need to understand that many times people of color don't leave jobs. They leave dysfunctional spaces, ineffective approaches, and unsupportive leadership. Mm -hmm. And there's also been recent developments in organizations that are removing DEI positions or demoting them. And I'm not surprised by this because many of them uh, have limited budgets, limited staff, and many times have no real voice or, or influence. That's not a reflection on the individuals in the roles per se, but what I'm saying, this is what many of the organizations are, are doing. And after the, after the killing of George Floyd, there were lots of declarations and commitments made, but I wonder about the follow through on that. And I'm doing some research right now. One report stated that over 70% of DEI leads are white. And I'm not sharing my thoughts about that. I wonder what you all think about that. Some schools of thoughts would say, what does it matter as long as the work gets done? And then some schools of thought would say, these are a part of the few leadership roles that people of color have access to. So uh, Indeed recently did a survey where it stated that 49% of black employees are thinking about leaving their jobs because they are unhappy. The last part here, Roland Martin said something last week that still has me reflecting and processing. He said that the original conversation around the 70s and 80s and, spark and starting DEI efforts was a focus on indigenous and black Americans from the 1960s and the Civil Rights Acts and their recovery from almost 400 years of strategic harm, devastation, and violence. And he said, and I also say, I respect other aspects and areas that are represented here today, and they deserve their just due. My point is that the original conversation and, and focus has been limited. And organizations in large part are simply concerned about how they look and how it impacts their reputation. Almost every organization that I've worked for throughout the years uh, doesn't see it as a business imperative, and I hope that people start to. Thanks for letting me do that with you. Well, thank you, everyone. I know we had one more question for you, but I'm going to jump to Q&A because we are getting down to the wire. I may still be able to sneak it in, but we'll see. Hmm. All right. Uh, I'm really glad that there are all these questions. <laughs> However, some of them I, I know we're just not going to be able to get to, and I apologize ahead of time. Um, I think that some of the resources that folks will share or have shared in the past might be able to answer some of these questions for you. So I'm going to try <laughs> to be judicious. Please don't throw tomatoes if you disagree with the ones that I pick. Um, I, this is something that I think a lot of people in the room are curious about, uh, Dr. Brooks. How did you make the tough decision to leave education, and how do you stay connected? <sighs> So yeah, you're gonna you get crying, it. Now they're gonna try to make me cry. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Very briefly, uh, again, I all of my degrees and certifications, licenses is in education. My father was an educator. My brother's an educator. I come from a family of educators. That's all I ever wanted to do. So you can imagine how difficult the decision was to say, you know what? I'm good. I think I'm good. I think I've I think I've had enough. I think I'm good. Um, and obviously, in a limited you know, uh, time period here, I just shared a few experiences. There's a lot more stuff there. There's a lot more stuff there. So um, I don't have anything bad to say. Uh, I still have kids in, in schools. 
but I tell them that it's not their teacher's job or any school job uh, to educate them. And I'm teaching them to uh, take control of their education uh, by the computer that's right there in the palm of their hand, um, right in using some of it for, for, for positive. So um, I just figured I can use my energy and efforts in other ways. I'll still work with educational institutions as a consultant, but I'm not trying to work for any of them. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm good. So again, I hope that doesn't come off as negative. I'm just saying, I'm gonna just do something else. And I think it's okay to pivot. You know, I, I gave it over 25 years and I have lots of positives and fond memories, um, but I want to be in a position where I feel like I can really move the needle. Thank you for the question. Dave, this question is for you. Should parents and educators be encouraging, and maybe Aaron too a little bit, mm -hmm. should parents and educators be encouraging more face-to-face -face social time after COVID pushed relationships to become more digital? I would say a short answer, my gut answer would be yes. I think that's, I think that's important. One of the things we did in our um, schools this year is we uh, adopted an away for the day policy. And at first I was kind of against that. I thought, oh, we really need to help the kids learn to balance and you know, they're gonna be going off to college and on their own with this device and they need to learn how to manage it, you know, still in, in the K-12 school setting. But um, what I've seen it, you kind of, the result of it is uh, because the phones aren't allowed out during the day, um, the kids are sitting around talking and conversing with one another at lunchtime and in the hallways and passing time and the downtimes. And it's very noticeably different at like that before school time when they have their device and the after school time when they, you know, can turn it back on or have it back out in the open. Um, and I, I think it's good for them to experience those times with peers and with friends that uh, are kind of phone free and, and distraction free. So mm -hmm. I, I think that's something I already mentioned that we can do, you know, as, as families around dinner table, car time, other things, but then also have good fun time with technology too, whether it's, you know, playing games with their kids or watching something together and mm -hmm. talking about it, uh, uh, so on. But a, a balance is important. I don't think it's a, uh, all on or all off situation. You want to add something, Aaron, to that? Or? You know, the only thing I would add is I do think it's an ex, um, yes for the screen free spaces. And I think I talked about this a little bit in my ed talk. The more we can build bridges mm -hmm. for students and bring those tech interests into spaces where they experience positive peer relationships, mentorships with adults, so that they're creating media they're sort of engaging in what we call connected learning environments. Um, because what we know is that when young people are using tech to escape their world or to escape relationship, that's when we tend to see worse outcomes than when students are using tech to move towards their world, to, to move towards their relationships and towards their educational goals and the story you just shared about your kids or otherwise. So sort of building those meaningful bridges and spaces where relationships are part of that tech time is also really protective mm. for their mental health. All right, Selma, one question for you. Um, and maybe you answered this in a talk, so uh, we can, that whoever asked this, you can go back and review that too. But what did it look like to become comfortable with celebrating your personal story? Mm. Mm. That's, a good That's a really good question. 
Um, I really um, talk a lot about Brene Brown, and she is a human being. Um, at first, when I read her book, Daring Greatly, it really changed my life because it gave me language to understand the difference between shame and guilt. Guilt, I did something bad. Shame, I am bad. So when I started to understand that, you know, living in public housing does not make me a bad person, right? Um, having anxiety does not make me a weak person. I was able to own my humanity and every single person. I feel like everybody wants to hear other people be vulnerable, but it really does take courage to share our humanity and then being able to be intentional and sharing, like oversharing is different than being vulnerable, right? You've got to share with purpose. And I also want to acknowledge that BIPOC individuals are not able to freely be vulnerable. And a lot of folks have said that, you know, the work of Brene Brown is harmful to BIPOC folks. So I, as much, you know, I acknowledge and I take the good from Brene, and I also know that she has work to do in acknowledging that being vulnerable is not always safe for everybody because my vulnerability, my vulnerability is often by some people seen as weakness. If another person of the majority culture is vulnerable, it's like, yeah, but I know that I'm not weak. I know that I'm dope. So I share my story because I want people that look like me to know that whatever it is that we're experiencing, it's, you know, it, it doesn't make us less than, it makes us powerful. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. There are so many more questions in this bucket, but it's 7.33. So <laughs> I wanna kinda, ooh, sorry, I'm a little too close. I wanna kinda sum up a lot of the questions that are in here, which is, what do we do? <laughs> that's that's kind of- In one minute. <laughs> yeah, in, in one minute. Uh, so I, I think that maybe it's an opportunity to engage with some of the resources that uh, you all have put together. It's an opportunity to engage with each other, um, to figure out what everybody else is doing um, and work together to find something. But I wanna also ask the question of all of you that may lead to a similar end, which is what is giving you hope? Like very 30 second answer, what's giving you hope uh, in the face of all this work? I'll go ahead and start. I've, I've framed a lot of today around a lot of the anti-trans legislation and a lot of the, the harm that our, that our community is facing inside of schools. Uh, and, what, and what gives me hope is that uh, we always uh, are here. You can't, like the recent word in the headline was uh, that the transgender folks should be eradicated. Mm. You're not gonna be able to do that, <laughs> right? Like we're, we're going to be here. Um, in the 1950s, there was the lavender scare. Uh, in the 80s, um, they ignored the uh, HIV and AIDS crisis that, that happened within our community. Um, we're currently trying to ban books and um, curriculum inside of our schools. You're not going to be able um, to do that. And that's because, uh, one, we have an incredible, amazing community. And two, we have incredible, amazing parents. We have incredibly amazing uh, educators. Uh, and we're going to continue to keep moving in this direction because that's who we are. Um, and so it gives me hope um, knowing that um, every time there has been um, 
that uh, attack. Uh, the community always, uh, and, and the supporters of the community always step up in an incredible way. And we're only seeing now um, more and more opportunities for representation, more and more opportunities for curriculum. Before I left MPS, I had the opportunity to uh, work with folks on developing the very first gender and sexuality curriculum uh, in the state, um, and that's for high schoolers, right? Um, and now, um, now that we have that, right, there's just so many more things that we can do. Um, so, so I do feel that even though there's the, the, the pushback at times, overall, the, the, the needle's moving forward. Dave, I think you're next. Jason's looking. <laughs> looking at me. I had written down a few hopes here. Um, I'm hopeful because I see progress, and it's hard to use these words in the same sentence. I see progress in legislation. Um, and <laughs> California is one of the biggest economies in the world, and in the past year, they have passed some really kind of landmark uh, legislation to protect children. Um, and against social media companies, against, um, com against kind of the monetization of children's attention. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we'll see that then also mirror, and it actually is in front of our U.S. Congress right now. It didn't do so well right before, um, right before the winter break here, but um, in the uh, Kids Online Protection Act, um, and they're looking at COPA, which is the Children's Online Protection Act, which says that you really only have to protect kids up, you know, under age 13. And now they're saying, well, maybe it should be 16 or 18. And that uh, the president uh, just a few weeks ago uh, called on Congress to pass legislation that would better protect uh, children against um, some of these harms that technology can have. I'm also hopeful because um, I see my own children and their friends, and I have adult children now, and um, they, I see them kind of taking a step back and checking themselves and even deleting apps and saying, you know, I, I'm giving up this or taking a break from that. And so I see them starting to um, realize the need for a balance. So I'm hopeful for that as well. Um, what gives me hope is humanity. I really um, believe that all people, most people are good people that are striving to do good. Um, and I really do believe in the power of social media to be used positively, especially Twitter. Um, I have been able to build community on Twitter with a lot of dope people. Um, and people that look like me in different states, like I sometimes do spend some time on Twitter, just cheering for people as they win in their lives. But that community that I wasn't always able to find in Minnesota, I was able to find on Twitter. So again, I think both Aaron and Dave talked about, we have the opportunity to use social media with purpose. But what really, really, really gives me hope is when people can lean in and be good people and be invested in relationships. Uh, connecting it back to my talk, relationships require us to love ourselves and to love people. So you have to have love and you have to be invested in those relationships and you've got to be vulnerable. Maybe you want to connect with somebody and they're not interested in connecting with you. Don't take it personal, but continue to cultivate community and know that if you have community, be an includer. Invite other people into that community because 
the more people we invite who are good, that have the commitment to do good, um, the better our society is. And lastly, what gives me hope are my kids. I've got a six-year-old beautiful boy named Adnan and a five-year-old daughter named Sophia, and they're incredible. And Sophia, I was recently telling her, Mommy, do you ever get nervous? She's like, nope. So she gives me hope. I can't wait to see her continue to grow up and to take up space. Um, I'll just share briefly what, what gives me hope. Um, you know, I've been looking at the research of media's impact on child health and development for 20 years, and I feel like in the beginning it was this like kids these days mentality and adults being like, well, I never. And, and it's this very like adults versus youth or like adults versus students. And that dynamic persists. But I think, the, I think we are starting to listen to young people and young people are often leading the way. Mm -hmm. They're like creating these spaces of refuge in social media mm -hmm. to push back against dominant narratives. They're sort of, they're like coding things that we haven't even made yet. And I hate it when adults are like, the kids will solve it. So I think it's not mm -hmm. that either. But I do think the more that we listen, when I sit down and ask young people, what are you concerned about? What are you not want to let go of? What are you proud of about your digital lives? A lot of it aligns with what I hear from caregivers and educators. Like we have some shared concerns, some shared opportunities. And that's not to say that in the daily caregiver child, like to, there are some power struggles at play at home. But in terms of the bigger, where are we headed? Um, I think that young people are asking really big and critical and important questions about why we're using the tools, where we're headed, are they making our communities better or worse, and what new tools need to be created to be more purposeful in relationship. Um, so rather than an adults versus young people, hopefully it's sort of an us looking at what does this look like going forward if we use tools in a, in a different way. Well, I really appreciate the question because I never want people to hear me talk about issues and not hear solutions at the same time. Um, and I'm really inspired by Marcus Pope and the work at Youth Prize. I'm y'all know y'all know Youth Prize. Yeah, I, I guess I'm a proponent of how about we invest in things that are working and effective. And that's what I like about some of the things that Youth Prize does. Also, Koinonia Leadership Academy. Uh, with Dr. Talia Tolfrey and the restorative practices that, that her and her team does. Phenomenal work. I'm also inspired by uh, Tony Hudson and Racially Conscious Collaborative that does phenomenal professional development around equity and racial equity. Um, so those are a few of the uh, organizations and, and individuals um, that I've just been kind of following and looking at their work. So please, if you're in a position to support their work, please support their work. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for your great questions. Thank you to our panelists. Once again, Dr. Keith Brooks, Jason Buckland, Dave Eisenman, Salma Hussein, and Aaron Walsh. And thank you all for joining us this evening. Um, you've been a great audience. Um, did you want to come up? Or you have a thing to say down there? Yeah, please. Okay. Hi, everyone. If it looks like I'm bum-rushing this stage as a fangirl, I absolutely am. Um, my name is Holly Craigthart. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm the director of Graves Ventures. And we are sponsoring uh, 
this series of events in the 10th year of Ed Talks very proudly. Um, Graves Ventures like is a different type of philanthropy where we dive in and roll up our sleeves and work in partnership with um, those who share our mission for a more vibrant place for our youth. And I just want to shout out Achieve has been absolutely lovely um, to work with. And I want to thank each and every one of you for coming to listen, which is so important, and celebrate with us. And also, Adia Morris, it is International Women's Day, and we are celebrating you. We would like to give you these flowers. Want to thank Adia for all of her amazing leadership and emceeing many, many egg talks. She is going to be going on leave shortly. And uh, my colleague, Kier Rankin, will be hosting the next couple of egg talks. So, Adia, we wish you the best with your little one. We can't wait for you to return. We admire you a ton. Thank you, everyone. Please drive safely this evening. And we're going to pass it to Adia now. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate this. That's beautiful. I was not expecting that. Uh, uh, just a few more housekeeping things. There's a survey. As always, there's a survey. Uh, it's going to be coming to you online. We graciously request that you participate in that. You'll receive a follow-up email with event videos, other resources. But I want to conclude the evening by once again thanking our very, very generous co-sponsor and funder, the Graves Foundation, uh, by inviting Holly Cragthorpe from Graves to the stage and to make some closing remarks, which she just did. So <laughs> thank you, everyone. Drive safely. Ed Talks is presented by Achieve Twin Cities in partnership with Graves Venture, a project of the Graves Foundation. For more information on Ed Talks, or to watch Ed Talks videos, or listen to audio podcasts, visit AchieveTwinCities.org.